Greetings fellow time travellers, always great to have you with me for the journey through space and time together. Huge thank you to everyone who already supports my patreon.com site. It's those who part with the cash on a monthly or annual basis that keep the wheels on the wagon. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com, search for me by name and go through the motions. Uh, It's uh, cheaper if you join for a whole year, but you can go month by month uh, and all of that works for me. As well as supporting the podcast, you get access to exclusive content, question and answers, uh, competitions and the chit chat that goes back and forth between the members of the extended family. Either we'll hope to see you there. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Only the English Channel stands between Britain and the enemy. Nazi plans for a seaborne invasion are well underway. But to be sure of success, the Royal Air Force had to be swept from the skies. At the height of the Battle of Britain, Winston Churchill witnesses up close and personal a day like no other. With no reserves left, the Royal Air Force hold the line and turn back the tide of German bombers and fighters. Churchill declares, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, And this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In the last episode, the date was 1933, when the leader of the National Socialists walked into the German president's office and changed the world. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Hello, time travellers. Yeah, last week uh, we saw the rise to power of Adolf Hitler, a charismatic leader with a gift for oratory and a taste for violence. This week it's 1940 and World War II is raging. Uh, Most of Europe is under the heel of Hitler's boot and as his bombers are raining destruction down on Britain, we're in Royal Air Force Fighter Command's Uxbridge Operations Room with Pug Ismay and Winston Churchill. Hi Paul, hi fellow time travellers. Today... We're in the sky. We're in the skies over the southeast of England, uh, and the time is well. It's a. It's it's the August of nineteen forty. Often people of a certain age will talk about that summer, and there's not many of them left now. Th- those people that remember that summer in any meaningful way. When I was growing up, re- really right up into my you know, thirties and into my forties, there were veterans of the First World War still alive. A handful of them, literally a handful of old men and a, and a couple of old ladies. They're all gone now. And now the veterans, the, the, the people with real memories of World War Two and that summer are another endangered species, really the ultimate endangered species, because they will soon and eventually be gone. And it means with the passage of time and with the passing of those people that that summer of 1940, it it has faded almost completely now. Like the colours on an old photograph, 
that's been pinned to a board and exposed to the light of the sun for too many summers. In a way, to extend that metaphor, no one looking at the at an old photograph like that is able to make out what it means, what it is, unless they have someone older with them that can that can draw the outlines with a finger. But I'm old enough, you're old enough, Paul, that we remember being told about about that summer of 1940 and the Battle of Britain, which which is what it's all about, which is what this love letter to the world is is all about. The, the term Battle of Britain was it was coined by Winston Churchill, the wartime prime minister of Great Britain, and his reputation has been through the has been through the ringer in recent decades, really recent years, certainly, uh, where people question his character and his motives and all of the rest of it. There was the withdrawal from mainland Europe out through Dunkirk. Some people old enough will, will know that Dunkirk resonates. You know, that, that rescue of 340,000 British soldiers. The entire British fighting force had to be rescued from the northern French coastline. Or they would all have been prisoners of war and, and World War II would have been over before it began. And that was Operation Dynamo, the little boats that went across and backed up the, the ships of the Royal Navy to, you know, to just get his, you know, ones and twos and tens and men off the beaches and get them back to England ready to fight another day. And in the aftermath of that, there was memorable lines about, you know, the Battle of France is over and the Battle of Britain is about to begin. And it was part of the way in which Winston Churchill usefully mythologised amongst everything else, for the listening public, and they were just listeners in those days, everyone was getting the news on the radio, he was mythologising it for the population with a view to energising an entire population with, with, with what lay ahead. And there's no doubting now that you know that summer of 1940 and the events that played out in the sky over London and over the South east of England, over Kent, whatever, are the stuff of myth and legend. That that transformation happened. So that as well as the history and the truth and the facts, there's myth and legend, and it's the myth and legend in many ways that has lasted longest. You know, history can be and is transformed into legend. It happens all the time. You know, if you look back to something like uh, Troy... The siege of Troy, and, and it comes down to us in the Iliad by Homer. And we know that there's fact there somewhere. Something happened, something military, something, some conflict happened in that part of the world. In the first millennium, the last millennium before the birth of Christ. And somewhere the facts are there, but it's been completely swallowed up by, or covered over by the myth and the legend. And it works in exactly the same way, really, as a grain of sand that triggers an oyster. You know, there's, you've got an oyster on the seabed or whatever and a, and a bit of sand gets in and it's an irritant. And the oyster's response is to lay down nacre, which is that pearlescent coating that is the pearl. And, it, and when enough of that nacre is laid down until you've got a pearl, you can't see the grain of sand or the 
bit of crab claw or whatever that was there at the beginning. All you've got is the pearl, but the grain of sand is still there. That's how myth and legend operates. Some will say, people of a rational bearing will say that only facts matter. And a lot of the time I would, I go along with that. But others count legend as more important. And I have a sympathy with that point of view as well. Because the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we are told and that we then repeat in our turn to our children and to the generations coming through, those versions of events can become irreplaceably important in in giving people, populations, a sense of themselves. Now, you can argue till you're blue in the face whether that whether there's value in that, giving people a sense of, of what it is to be British or what it is to be American or what it is to be Japanese or whatever. You, you know, you can you can argue about about the, the 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 practicality of that and the morality of that and the efficacy of so doing, but there's no doubting that it works. You can give people a sense of what it means to be the product of a past. And it's it's mythologizing and legend making that's part of the that are parts of the machinery of making that happen. Myths can give generations coming through an ideal to which they might aspire. So that whether the the events in the myth unfolded in the way that they did or not, you can persuade people that that kind of behaviour is possible. Whether it happened or not, it's aspirational. And that they may be imbued with the urge, the drive to live up to that ideal. And that is very useful and it can be very powerful and it can be very, very important. Because national identities and countries are fictions. Geographical entities are real, but being British is a story that British people tell each other. And you can make it a powerful and motivating story if you want. You can make it a story of which to be proud, or you can make it a story of which to be ashamed. And, and, and people are being made ashamed of Britain and Britishness at the moment, the generation coming through. You know, I don't have it. I wasn't infected with that particular virus. But there are young people coming through that think everything about Britain's past is just something to be ashamed of. But myth can be used in a positive way. It doesn't have to be jingoistic. It doesn't have to be about, you know, provoking war. You know, there's a lot going on at the moment. Right now, right now, there's nonsense being preached at the moment. Boris Johnson and the rest of them are out there saying that, that, that Britain has to have a call-up and that we have, to get, we have to get ready for some sort of forever war with Russia and everybody else. So it, it can be used mischievously and, and maliciously, but it can also be used in a positive sense to give people the idea that they're growing up somewhere worthwhile and that there are ways of being in the paideia, in the air around them, that might be worth perpetuating. So there, there's a, a, a rambling introduction to this idea. So let's get to the to the moment in question, to the to the stuff of this particular love letter. It's tied to a day in August 1940, and we don't actually need to be too preoccupied with the date. But there came a day in 1940 
within that perfect summer. And it had meteorological records show that it had been a perfect summer over England in particular. Long, clear days, blue skies, cartoon clouds, perfection. Apart from anything else, you know, there was the, the, we were at war. War was declared in 1939, and fighting men had already suffered and died. But the climate itself almost conspired to remind people of what England, what Britain could be. It, it seemed ideal, idealised. It was perfect. And that added a poignancy to people's sense of what had to be done. Look how great it is here. Look how lovely it is here. How green the fields, how blue the sky. Well, however perfect the weather, however glorious that summer, there was a war on, World War Two. And in that first year or so of the war, as I say, you know, war had been declared between Britain and Germany year before, 1939. So, you know, a year or so in, believe it or believe it not, Britain was still coming to terms with the scale of what lay ahead. You know, there was talk of a phony war, and you know, that, that, that kind of irony that people had learned in the First World War, you know, suggested to them that, you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. And there was this uncertainty about what the scale of what might lie ahead. And the generations old enough to fight in World War Two lived, had grown up in, or had matured in the shadow, under the shadow cast by World War One. There were only 20 years between them. And Britain and the British, in many ways, Britain was reeling from the impact of, of World War One. It's hard to imagine now, but from villages through towns, through cities, they were populated by, by veterans who were visibly veterans of World War One. You Men blinded. Men walking with sticks, men missing limbs, arms and legs, men with mental wounds as well as physical or instead of the physical. And in some ways, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was as disabling as any loss of a limb. And, and as well, there were thousands and thousands of uncountable numbers of people still grieving loss, loss of husbands, loss of fathers, loss of brothers, sons, all, all of whom had been been through the the great meat grinder of 1914 to 1918, and so Britain was not ready to face up. to, Oh my God, we're doing it again! It was unthinkable. The the First World War had been pitched as the war to end all wars, and 20 years later, it was all happening again. And so, for a whole cocktail of reasons, understandable reasons, Britain and the British had been slow to recognise to accept what might be what was coming their way, courtesy of the, you know, the, the continental ambitions of Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich. And all of that was a contributory factor that meant that many, especially many of those in power, people in government, people in the establishment, had had an appetite for diplomacy in the face of Adolf Hitler. And, and uh, diplomacy's handmaiden, which is appeasement. You, you know, the thinking had gone that, you know, maybe this guy, you know, the one that Hindenburg had described as a as an upstart, you know, an uppity corporal, 
maybe he could be placated. There was a, a grudging acceptance that what had been done to Germany by the Treaty of Versailles had humiliated Germany and, and Germans. And so there was a thinking that, look, let's let, let Adolf Hitler and let Germany rebuild their sense of pride in country. And to some extent, let's let Adolf Hitler reassert German ambitions in relation to our continental neighbours. You know, a, a, an awakening to the reality that because of where Germany sat and everything that Germany had always been, it was always going to matter. This pretense that they had sort of cauterized, gelded Germany for all time was people are coming to terms with the fact that Germany was going to get up again. And so maybe we can maybe we can work with Hitler. This was the feeling. Maybe that will satisfy him. He might leave us alone. Might not bother with Britain. And that added to and complicated by the fact that Britain was in no physical or industrial state to contemplate a world war. 20 years since the First World War had not enabled in any meaningful sense Britain to get back into being tooled up. for, And it, there was no appetite for being tooled up for a global conflict anyway. And so when war was declared in 1939, when finally appeasement was demonstrably not stopping Hitler, he wasn't settling for anything, Britain had to buy time. They declared war, but they didn't have the men or the munitions or anything else. So they had to buy time to enable preparations to be made, to get things up and running. On the other side of the balance sheet, fair to say that Hitler and Germany were in no state for anything protracted either. You know, Germany had the living daylights kicked out of it by the First World War and by the uh, by the Treaty of Versailles. But Hitler had them back on the tracks and was pushing forward to greatness. But they weren't they weren't ready for anything lasting years, and so. Everything about what Hitler had in mind rested on lightning strikes and instantaneous success achieved in days rather than anything run into weeks and months and years. Hence blitzkrieg, lightning war, just get it over with, just just hit everybody in the face, bang, 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 and they'll all will have won. That was the thinking. I mentioned already Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk had been this terrible, terrifying wake-up call for, for Britain. And it had triggered Operation Dynamo, which was, as I mentioned, was the, the, the boats and the ships that, that managed to get the British expeditionary forces back out of France and back into, back into Britain. That was as recent as May and June. Dunkirk, the events on Dunkirk had happened that summer as well. And it had been a success and it was certainly pitched as, an, as, a, as a, a snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. But it frightened the living daylights out of everyone. What it did, crucially, in terms of this love letter to the world, is it turned a spotlight on the English Channel as Britain's last line of defence. You know the, the way in which um, Dad's Army, <laughs> the, the comedy series, the opening sequence for that had the British arrows pulling back onto the, onto the British mainland and sort of probing back sheltering behind the protection afforded by the English Channel. People of a certain age will remember all of that. And it also threw the RAF into the spotlight, the Royal Air Force, which had been a product of World War I by another name. But, you know, by, by 1940, the Royal Air Force was clearly going to have to play a significant role. There were dark mutterings of invasion by Germany. It was called Operation Sea Lion. And the word was that Hitler planned to send a seaborne invasion across from northern France, which he had now conquered, 
send the ships full of thousands of German soldiers across the English Channel in September 1940 sometime. And the thinking went that before in sending all those ships full of soldiers, boats full of soldiers into the Channel, the, the Royal Air Force would be swept from the sky by the end of August. So they would deploy fighters and everything else to get rid of the Royal Air Force so that they would have a clear run across the Channel. Not factoring in the British Royal Navy, of course, but nonetheless, this was the thinking. Operation Sea Line was the one that, that people in, in high command were afraid of. Now, under uh, a character called Air, well, Air Chief Marshal was his rank, Hugh Dowding, Air Chief Marshal, in charge of the, the, the Royal Air Force. He had, uh, in the short term, he had already seen to it that fighter command, that, that body uh, choreographing the activities of the Royal Air Force, was split into groups each focused on its own patch of sky. So number 10 group concentrated on the southwest of England. Number 12 group was looking at the Midlands and the north. But number 11 group was London and the southeast. So there was a particular frisson around number 11 group because London was, was and is the capital of Great Britain. That was the main centre of population all in one place. And the moment in question in this particular love letter, it unfolds in the operations room of Number 11 Group, which was in Uxbridge. Winston Churchill has gone on a, an official operational visit to the operations room at Uxbridge, and he has brought with him his, his best mate and his senior lead assistant, aide-de-camp, everything. He's, you know, he's oppo. Uh, General Hastings Lionel Ismay known to one and all as Pug, Pug is me. And they've come on this particular day in August 1940 to catch up with Air Vice Marshal Keith Park. And he's based there in the operations room in Uxbridge. He's got responsibility for number 11 group's activities. And Churchill and Ismay, Pug Ismay, have come to see for themselves just how fraught the Battle of Britain's in full flight. It's, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's live. And they've come to the operations room to see just just what the state of play is. You know, it's it's worth it's worth knowing for for for, for the generations that that didn't get it at school or whatever or haven't read a book about it that you know the Battle of Britain that day that day with with Churchill and Ismay and Park was just one day. The Battle of Britain, well, even that people calculate it and say it lasted from this date to that date, but. Let's say it lasted from about July till the end of October. And and some people finesse that and say, no, no, it started later and it finished earlier and whatever. But the Battle of Britain was the stuff of weeks and months. And this day is just a day that encapsulates everything that the Battle of Britain has come to be remembered for what it meant. And it's, inten it's as intense as it could possibly be. In the sky above, on behalf of the Royal Air Force, are Spitfires, Supermarine Spitfires, the you know the creme de la creme of, of the fighting aircraft available to the Royal Air Force, and Hurricanes, which are often downplayed, but you know did more damage in the long term than Spitfires actually did. They were the they were the workhorses of the of the fighter uh, squadrons, and they're they're going head to head with the German equivalent Messerschmitts, Messerschmitt 109 and Messerschmitt 110s. Every bit is good, really. You know, on a good day, the best pilot in a Messerschmitt was going to best a Spitfire, just as 
the best pilot in a Spitfire would knock out the, the Messerschmitt. It, was, it, it came down to men and moments. The German fighters, Messerschmitt, they're covering, swimming alongside, if you like, the great whales that are the German bombers. You know, they're escorting these great fleets of bombers to come and cause devastation on London. So it's all, and this is all happening in the air above. And so you've all, surely everyone's old enough to have seen some of the wartime movies of, you know, the, the women with the sticks pushing things about on great big tabletop maps of, of number 11 group. Where's the German planes coming in? Here's the, here's where all the British uh, aircraft are. And you know, Pug and Churchill are watching this with all, listening to, the, you know, the feedback coming in from the radios and all of the rest. And Churchill says, what about reserves? What have you, what, 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 how much is standing by aircraft and men? And Air Vice Marshal Keith Park says, there's no reserves. Everything is in the sky. Everything is already in the air. All the aircraft and the pilots to fly them. Because the, the pro, one of the problems was, eventually, not at that point, eventually Britain was able to churn out endless, well, spitfires, endless hurricanes, endless anything you want, but they couldn't replace the men. Aircraft are just made out of aluminium and whatever, but men, <laughs> you don't just produce 19, 20, 21-year-old men out of nowhere. So this was the problem, but, but imagine... You know, Churchill's in there, wrapped attention, pug over his shoulder, they're watching. What about reserves? What reserves? It's all happening now. We either carry the day now or it's over. So the silence falls and they wait for hours because Ch Churchill really officially has other places to be. And, you know, Pug tries to get him out to go elsewhere, but he won't leave until until whatever happens, happens. And eventually, after hours of this, word starts to come into Uxbridge that the German fighters are running out of fuel and they've run out of ammunition. And so therefore they have no option but to withdraw. Now, this is the great advantage for defenders. You know, the, the British aircraft could land on the grass beneath them if they had to, if they ran out of fuel. Every German pilot over Kent or over London or whatever had to watch the fuel gauge and whatever and, and leave enough to get back because they're either going to run out of fuel completely and crash and die or they'll have to land and they'll be captured and they'll become prisoners of war. So the pressure, the greater pressure is on the, the attacking force. The defenders, they're at home. They're protecting hearth and home. And so eventually the, the German fighters have to withdraw and so the, the bombers, which would be hopelessly exposed, have to withdraw as well. So they all write, the day is ours. And they shake hands, whatever, and Pug is me and Winston Churchill go back out and they get into the official car. And, you know, they get into their seats and Pug leans forward to say something to his boss. And Churchill just... He holds up a hand. He says, don't speak to me yet. I have never been so moved. And they just sit. The car pulls out. They just sit in silence. The wheels, the tyres hum on the, on the tarmac. And Churchill's just looking out the window. And Pug's just watching his boss. And eventually, eventually, Churchill looks his friend in the eye and says... Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few.
And Pug says nothing. What can you say? And he goes home, he gets dropped off, and he tells his wife what's happened, and he writes it in his diary, because men in those days, they kept, they kept diaries so that they would be able to remember. And, but in any event, you didn't need to remember it, because on the 20th of August, just days later, um, Churchill stood up in Parliament and delivered that speech that summer. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few, and and the legend, the legend is born. Did it play out like that? Don't know. Unless you were eavesdropping on the conversation between Pug Esme, Winston Churchill and Air Vice Marshal Keith Park on that day, that August, that summer of 1940, you don't know. And you don't know if it, you don't know, but that's the that's the legend, that's the myth, that's the that's the grain of sand, which triggered the formation of the pearl, that is the legend of the few, but bigger than that, ever since really, there's been endless debate about how much of a difference the Battle of Britain, and remember there are those that say the Battle of Britain was a figment of. Winston Churchill's creative thinking. How much did it actually matter? And the, the historians argue the toss back and forth and say, well, it, it was just propaganda. You know, it was just well-handled public relations. And they say that the, the efforts, the endeavour of the pilots have been overblown. I mean, Operation Sea Line never happened. That's a fact. But the critics of the legend say it wasn't the Battle of Britain that stopped Operation Sea Line. That was a side dish. That was an amuse-bouche. What happened was that Hitler had to change his priorities because he had the USSR pushing in from the east. He had to fight Russia, or he decided that he had to fight Russia, which was ultimately his undoing. And you can go round and around and around it, and you can, well, you can decide whether or not you think the Battle of Britain mattered in the way that a generation or generations grew up thinking it had mattered. But it's also true to say that that concept of the few was internalised by the British people. It's a grain of sand from which grew a pearl. And the legend of the few has lasted ever since. If you say to me, someone my age, the few, I know what you mean. You're talking about the Spitfire and Hurricane pilots who had to hold the line. That, that's what I think of. And the people that grew up with that, they passed it on to their children and then their grandchildren so that there was a, an unbroken line for a while of generations of British people who had that as part of what Britain was. Every summer, they remembered Battle of Britain Day and men who were growing increasingly old with their medals on their chests, who had been the pilots you know, would be there in the spotlight again and people would remember. It was it was there at the heart of what it meant to be Britain. And there was a, a an abiding belief for generations during World War II and after World War II that anything was possible if you were brave enough to try. And that when it came to it, the few would make the difference. That became part of a whole generations of British people understood themselves in that way. And you can, you can decide whether or not you think the facts of the matter 
are as they are and were portrayed, and that the Battle of Britain turned back Hitler and stopped Operation Sealand. You can make of that what you will, but there's no denying that for the longest time Britain felt proud because of that behaviour, because of that aspiration. Per Ardua Adastra, by endeavour to the stars, was made manifest by the Battle of Britain. It's all there. And now, for the longest time, generations of British children, young people, have, have been taught that Britain was just bad news, that everything Britain ever did was bad news, and that Britain's only something to be afraid of. And so I would invite you to contemplate whether that's an improved state of affairs, or whether it might not be better to think that bravery matters and that just maybe, just maybe, I, you, we might be capable of living up to that ideal. As the gates opened, a ghastly sight arose before our eyes. Skeletons clad in skin with vacant eyes. Starvation, diarrhoea, typhus, all manner of disease stopped the prisoners still clinging to life. Beyond politics, beyond ideologies, beyond battles, a place where men, women and children were murdered, executed for the crime of being alive in the world. Here is war, any war, every war. Every war ends in a pile of corpses too large to count. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com and I'll be delighted to see you there. I've got a new website address. It's easy for these complicated times. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise inspired by this podcast series. There are t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all sorts. My Instagram account is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. To help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>